Hello, and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. And this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. We are a month in to the fighting in Ukraine, and we're starting to get a much clearer sense of what the global and longer term implications of the conflict there are going to be. Just as the political community is waiting for sanctions in Russia to begin to bite, we're also beginning to feel the bite of the economic impact of the conflict outside Russia. And Claudine, I was about to launch into a minor complaint to you about how inflation in the UK is at a 30-year high at what seems to be the astronomical number of 6.2%. But that really pales in comparison to what's happening elsewhere. Yes, Chuck, I think there are countries around the world experiencing very high levels of inflation, in many cases, the highest that they have had for many years, if not decades. And for some countries, including Egypt and Turkey, inflation is well into double digits by now. In the previous episode of this podcast, Claudine, we were talking to our colleague, Oksana Antonenka, about the cost of energy, which is one of the biggest drivers of the spike in inflation that we're feeling in countries all around the world. In this episode, We're going to be talking about food. Ukraine and Russia are enormously significant to supplies of critical food goods, actually for many countries around the world, far beyond Europe. And some of those countries are actually the most vulnerable too. Our analysts have been writing analysis over the last week about shortages of foods and food price rises having already a significant impact on all kinds of risks that businesses are tracking from sovereign risk to unrest risk to political stability. That's right, Claudine. And once again, we're learning that a conflict that is in many cases incredibly far away from where we live and work is coming right home to the kitchen table. The conflict has physically disrupted food exports in the sense of both disruptions of shipments from Ukraine itself, as well as the disruptive impact of Western economic and financial sanctions on the ability to conduct trade with Russia. Those disruptions and higher input costs, including the rising price of energy, but also inputs like fertilizer that have also been disrupted by this conflict, both through the conflict itself and through sanctions, are feeding into higher food prices as well. That's Jonathan Wood, principal based in our Washington, D.C. office. Jonathan, we're not just looking at a problem that's going to be with us for 2022, but there's already a fairly elevated risk that the supply of critical grains and the supply of the chemicals that's needed to grow them is going to be with us in 2023 as well. The reason why I asked that question, Jonathan, is because the disruption to Ukraine and its infrastructure is lasting and enduring and will need enormous repair. As far as the Russian economy and its ability to acquire, process, and export the chemicals and the inputs that it needs into the fertilizer industry, let alone its own grain imports, will remain problematic for really the foreseeable future. Exactly as you say, the amount of damage to infrastructure in Ukraine as a result of this conflict and that's both physical infrastructure and human infrastructure, will likely compromise Ukraine's ability over the medium term to rebuild its farming industry. 
And there are already concerns, of course, very obvious ones, that the conflict will conflict with the looming fall planting season, thereby result in a significant decline in Ukrainian production and potential exports in, in 2023 and beyond. You know, the second factor is that many of the major global agribusiness companies that are involved in agriculture in Russia, Ukraine, and you know, the wider Eurasia region, some of them have scaled back their operations in Russia as a result of the conflict. Many of them are coming under significant shareholder, stakeholder, and activist pressure to completely withdraw. And these are companies that provide farm vehicles, chemical inputs, seeds, logistics, and other types of managerial expertise to those you know, food-producing regions. And so we are looking at a possibility where those companies may find it very difficult to remain engaged in some of these economies, either for operational or reputational reasons. And again, many of them are remaining in place for this harvest and planting season. But you know, in 2023, much will depend on the nature and trajectory of this conflict. If it lasts, which it could do under some scenarios, if it becomes protracted, then we might well see some of these international companies begin to pull out of those sectors as well. Which countries are going to be most impacted by the disruption to supply out of Ukraine? Well, this is the thing that's really important to remember. You know, as Chuck said, this inflationary shock is really a global phenomenon. But the specific impacts of supply disruption from Russia and Ukraine have a disproportionate impact on those countries and regions that are heavily dependent on them for food imports. These include, of course, the CIS and Central and Eastern European regions that immediately you know, border and are proximate to Russia and Ukraine, North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, major importers of grains from Ukraine and Russia, specifically countries like Tunisia, Egypt, Morocco, Algeria, you know, Sudan, all of which are facing the prospect of not just higher global prices, but existing trade linkages and relationships that are going to be disrupted by this conflict as well. And if we think a bit you know, broader beyond just some of those immediate grain food commodities, second order impacts on things like meat production, dairy production that are all impacted by higher input prices. Again, for those countries that are highly import dependent on those products, they're looking at much more significant food price increases. The, the flip side of this is that some agricultural producing countries, and you can think, for example, I've been speaking with our analysts in Sao Paulo and in Bogota about the impact in the Latin America region. Many of those countries are agricultural commodity exporters like Brazil and Argentina. There will be some degree to which their terms of trade improve from the ability to access these higher global prices. But at the same time, they might be exporting you know, primary food products, importing manufactured food products. So they are also facing significant imported inflationary pressures, even if they are also significant commodity exporters. So at the very least, those, those things are likely to offset each other. Uh, and it might even well turn out to be a net negative, even for some of those big agricultural exporters. In the podcast that we produced earlier about the impact of Ukraine on, on energy, we talked a bit about the levers that can be pulled by international organizations or states to try and increase and address supply issues to keep a lid on oil prices. But it seems like the scope for or the, the range of levers available 
to manipulate the food market are far more limited in nature? Well, they're not dissimilar. I mean, we've been through a major food price spike during the commodity super cycle that you'll remember from the kind of period leading into the financial global financial crisis, 2005, 6, 2007, really culminating in 2008 with record food prices that have now been exceeded. And in response to that, many countries looked to increase their resilience to food supply disruptions and food price inflation by you know, building domestic stocks of food, diversifying their imports and, and international supply of food. Those efforts have been you know, partly successful in some places, very successful in others, and maybe less successful in, in some regions. But you know, heading into this conflict, the, the global food situation from a pure supply standpoint was not particularly dire. We had had some very positive harvest outlooks for 2022 compared to 2020, 2021, where there were some you know, drought had, had had a negative impact on food production in, in countries like Brazil. That baseline global food situation wasn't terrible. Obviously, the conflict is going to take a big chunk out of the availability of supply this year and, and perhaps into the future. But really, the more urgent consideration, I think, and certainly a, a, an issue that the World Food Program, the UN, global humanitarian organizations are really focusing on is the increased costs of accessing that food and providing both you know, market access on the ground in all of these emerging and developing countries, but also the cost of providing food assistance, which has gone up you know, 40, 50, 60% in, in some cases as a result of food supply disruptions. And so in a situation which probably seems depressingly familiar to those who have looked at food security over the years, which is less perhaps one of a sheer global lack of food and rather more of one of an inability to afford the food that is available. And so this is why we're hearing calls for a much more significant injection of international financial resources to deal with the food security implications of this crisis. And that's going to have to come you know, from Western countries, at the very least, to offset some of the impacts that Western financial sanctions are having on global food markets. Jonathan, you characterize the kinds of countries that will be hit by food inflation as heavily dependent on imports. A lot of the countries in the regions that you mentioned are also fairly low-income countries. And another thing that characterizes them, some of them at least, are pre-existing conditions like political instability and pressure on social cohesion and, 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 and civil unrest. So let's take that backdrop and food prices spike. What happens next? Low-income, middle-income countries, households in those countries spend more of their income on food than households in high-income countries. So households in low- and middle-income countries are automatically much more exposed to rising global food prices because it's such a large component of their consumption basket. And so that's why the focus is really on those countries as the ones that will be disproportionately impacted, even though, as you say, Chuck, inflation is a global phenomenon and consumers worldwide are paying more for food these days. Consumers in low- and middle-income countries are proportionately paying much more. And that's even more the case where you have maybe large emerging market megacities where much of the food is imported and where markets in those cities in parts of West Africa, for example, are highly exposed to, to international 
price pressures. So should we expect people out on the streets, Jonathan? Places like Tunisia, for example, the birthplace of the Arab Spring just over a decade ago, and now the government really cracking down very hard already on black market sales, for example, and hoarding of some subsidized foodstuffs in an effort to contain the impact of food pricing. Is that because governments are already sensing the danger of people taking to the streets? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is something that we all and global companies need to be very alert to because that global commodity supercycle and rapidly rising food prices in 2007-2008 were key backdrop to the political instability that that ultimately emerged across North Africa and the Middle East. This is where I would bring in, you know, it's not just the price factors, it is also the sort of cultural relevance and significance of food and certain types of food in particular, you know, wheat and bread products in those markets, that meant that those food prices had not just an economic impact, but they also wound up having a political impact in, in contexts where governments sort of are predicated on their ability to satisfy basic welfare. When that falls apart, then those social unrest risks become more significant. As Bob Marley you know, famously said, a hungry mob is an angry mob. And I think we should anticipate an increase in food-related unrest. But there's an important nuance here, which is that in 2008, 2011, and perhaps today as well, it's not the desperately food insecure or the famine afflicted populations that are going to be the source of this unrest, right? Mostly this is coming out of emerging middle classes in these emerging market economies, urban populations, sometimes well educated populations that are seeing their futures robbed by high inflation and unemployment and a lack of economic opportunity more generally. And those have tended to be the cohorts, including during the Arab Spring, that were taking to the streets and posing a real significant threat of political instability. And so, you know, that's really the segment where I do, where I do think we need to watch. Government responses to this over the years have, have really varied. I mean, there's been everything from very substantial political repression to the subsidization of food, to appeals to the international community for food assistance, and of course, scapegoating of individuals, both domestic and foreign entities for food prices. I, I suspect we will see a mix of all of those things as governments try to keep those pressures from getting out of control in the coming weeks and months. We'll return to the discussion in just a moment. But if you and your organization are looking for more information on the situation in Ukraine, subscribe to Control Risk's bi-weekly Ukraine-Russia Monitor. This is one of Control Risk's most readily available tools, with analysis on operational risk, reputational risk, cyber, and geopolitical risk. To find out more, follow the link in the podcast notes. Now, back to the discussion. Jonathan, do we see at any point this all coming full circle? And once the shortages and the logistics and and the functional blockades spark unrest in countries and markets around the world, does this then at any point begin to apply pressure on the parties to the conflict? Does this exacerbate, does it accelerate, does it impact the course of the conflict? I think it's clear already that the impacts on food production and distribution networks in Ukraine alone are going to precipitate a massive humanitarian crisis and and a long-lasting one 
at that, I'm not sure that that is going to significantly change the strategic calculus or direction of the conflict itself. In terms of pressure on actors that are external to this conflict, of course, you know, I think the consensus is that Western economic and financial sanctions have added significant risk to doing business in Russia and to transacting, including food transactions with Russia, even though food exports themselves have not been directly sanctioned. Although I just note here that Belarus's fertilizer exports have been directly sanctioned in the course of this conflict. But, you know, one thing that we might well see are efforts to make it very clear that food, food products, food-related services are not sanctioned. But I, but I think at the same time, you know, companies will have to make their own independent risk assessments from both a legal standpoint, but also from a reputational standpoint about their ability to remain engaged in those markets. So we might see some impact on that front in terms of trying to minimize or mitigate the impact of sanctions on global food market specifically. Well, Jonathan, where do companies fit in with all of this? Well, I think one thing that this conflict has amply demonstrated is that publics, at least in Western countries, see companies as geopolitical actors, and they, they're sort of expecting them to align with and augment and amplify the types of foreign policies that they, that they endorse and support, whether that's around you know, Western sanctions or participation or tie-ins with certain Russian companies. So it's really the continuation of this trend that I think we've seen for much of the last 10 or 20 years, which is that power is sort of draining from the political establishments and political institutions into these commercial linkages, which have been just absolutely critically important to how economies perform and, and, and even how politics is conducted. We've seen this during the pandemic as well with the supply chain disruption to you know to semiconductors and to other critical products that was very illuminating in terms of just how central private commercial agency is to the basic stability of economic and and, and geopolitical order and we're seeing that again now with food production systems and so companies you know they they face correspondingly increasing pressure. And I think this is something we've also been talking about for much of the last five years, mainly with respect to climate change, but just the degree that it's no longer enough for many companies to simply comply with local laws and local regulations, but they have to refer to some set of global or universal or encompassing corporate principles and ethics. And I think we're seeing that play out in this conflict as well as companies really look to their peer organizations, industry groups, and their consumer markets and their suppliers for the types of responses that they are making. They're, they're auditing these interests and these, these shareholders and these stakeholders and saying, you know, what position should we as a company be taking? It's very similar to the type of pressure that they found themselves under increasingly in, in other issue sets. Jonathan, climate change is already dictating how people use energy. It's dictating how people use water. It's dictating what people do with the atmosphere around them. What happens when a climate change crisis collides with a food crisis? Well, we are facing the prospect of some very significant negative feedback loops between this crisis and the climate crisis. You've spoken with, with Oksana a bit about energy and you know how one of the responses to the current 
energy and supply price shocks is to ramp up production of fossil fuels. So one of the other responses is, of course, to accelerate the energy transition. But those two things are you know, fundamentally in tension. The market is likely to respond with an increase in oil and gas production in, in some countries and perhaps an increase in oil and gas consumption as well, which will, of course, redound to the climate crisis itself. You know, shifting the same lens to the current food supply and food price crises. Obviously, we might anticipate that high global food prices would stimulate a market response in terms of increasing plantings and thereby increasing future harvests. But that may also wind up coming at the expense of climate change. First, because it could result in clearing additional land for agriculture or for livestock, both releasing carbon directly and you know, depleting the, the capacity of that land to absorb carbon in the future. And of course, we can't forget that no matter what market incentives there might be to increase production, that you know, climate change is a huge factor in global food production already. It's already negatively impacting harvests in some regions because of drought, maybe in other regions because of excess flooding. So you know, we, we have this sense that it may prove more difficult than we think to simply grow more food as a way to get out of this crisis because climate change may begin to put some, some significant constraints on our, our ability to do that. That's right. I mean, it sounds like it's going to force another series of incredibly uncomfortable trade-offs. I mean, how much longer will we be able to protest Amazon deforestation if we're hungry? Well, that's exactly right. And you, you see those types of tensions worldwide now between, you know, to, to go back to your, your choice turn of phrase earlier, Chuck, the kitchen table issues that many households are now grappling with, rising cost of living, even at a time of relatively robust economic recovery. And these longer term, you know, future orientated issues around things like climate change. Political systems are geared and, and designed often to respond to short term tactical demands. And they have a hard time looking through those to the bigger strategic picture. I don't think companies are fully grappling yet with this particular issue, particularly compared to other issues as the consequences of Russia, Ukraine, which are perhaps more immediately and urgently requiring their attention. Jonathan, what do you think companies should be doing? to prepare and to understand the consequences of the impact on food. Companies have spent the first month of this conflict in crisis management mode and you know it's worth bearing in mind this comes after nearly 2 years of crisis management of the pandemic and I think we are now at the point at which they are beginning to look for the bigger picture the more strategic issues the longer term trajectory and not just of this conflict but you know of some of the deeper trends in geopolitics and in the global economy. One of the main ways that we are helping companies address this is through scenario identification and planning, essentially trying to identify the ways which for their operational footprint, for their sector, for their particular types of exposures, you know, how they, how they have exposure to this conflict and, and to an issue like the food crisis, that there may be more direct impacts on companies that are in that sector. But if you're a company that's operating in you know, North Africa or the Middle East or parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, an internet startup or a manufacturing company or a mining company, you know, you're, you're looking at second order impacts from things like political instability and social unrest as well. And so it really is identifying those scenarios over the next one to two years and stress testing you know, your business strategy and your business model against how they, they might develop. You know, we've been getting lots of questions from clients about supply chain disruption and commodity prices because 
you know, many of them are in manufacturing sectors or are involved in supply chains for manufactured products where the economics have just been completely upended by surging mineral prices or surging energy prices. In some cases, even with direct operational impacts when factories are going offline. And the same may very well apply to food prices as well. And so they're taking a look and saying, are there ways that we can make our business more resilient to a, a protracted or prolonged period of high energy prices? Where should we be looking for high energy prices to take manufacturing capacity offline? Where should we be looking for high mineral prices to make some products either much less competitive or some, some supply chains less competitive? Where should we be thinking about moving our supply chains in the future to put them closer to markets or to put them closer to raw materials? Clients are now asking these questions. They're no longer seeing this as a transient dynamic that's going to be over in a few weeks. This is now you know, the future. And I think that they're adjusting accordingly. Jonathan, I know you're incredibly busy at the moment providing all sorts of expert support to clients. Grateful for the time. Thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Jonathan. Talk again soon. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay tuned with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping build secure, compliant, and resilient businesses by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicky Bufton. For me, thanks for listening and bye for now. And goodbye from me.